Thank you, Travis. Um, at the close of our service today, as you can probably see, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And want to encourage you, invite you to share in that. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're walking in fellowship with him, you are welcome at that table. When, when we do, we use the center aisle and the wall aisles to approach the table and these two right here to return to our seats. So I hope you'll ready your heart for that even as you receive the word in the next few minutes to, to share in that time together. Um, today we are going to think back through the book of Revelation. We've finished our study of the book of Revelation over the last several months and today we want to do a review of sorts and it's sometimes tempting to think, well, why don't we just go on to the next thing? Why, why are we gonna, we've been in this for three months, why would we back up and go through it all again? And there's this troubling little verse in James. It simply says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So evidently, James thinks that there are people in the world, um, maybe even people in the church, who deceive themselves into thinking that it's enough to listen to a podcast or come to church and listen to a sermon and that's sufficiently pleasing to God. And evidently there are enough of these kind of people in the world or in the church even that James thought it was needful to write it down so that we would be confronted by that. And Evidently, there's enough of these kind of people in the world that the Spirit of God deemed it needful to include it in the Bible so that we would not fall into the error of just hearing the word and not doing it. So that is why we're reviewing the book of Revelation today. Um, on the off chance that we might be tempted by the same malady of the soul to just hear and think that's enough. Instead, we, we want to carry it with us. Um, and not be a hearer only. Pastor Eugene Peterson tells this kind of personal story about how he thinks about this. He says, at age 35, I bought running shoes and began enjoying the smooth rhythms of long-distance running. Soon I was competing in 10K races every month or so, and then a marathon once a year. And he said, I was subscribing and reading three running magazines during this time. He said, but, but then, he says, I pulled a muscle, couldn't run for a couple months, and interesting enough, he says, I stopped reading the magazines. When I wasn't running, I wasn't reading. It just wasn't relevant. He goes on and says, the parallel with reading scripture is striking. If I'm not living in active response to the living God, reading about his creation or salvation or holiness won't hold my interest for long. The most important question, he said, isn't what does the Bible mean? It's what can I obey when I read the Bible? He said, simple obedience will open up our lives to a text more quickly than any number of Bible studies or dictionaries or concordances. So the question this morning, as, as we review the book together, that I want you to, to keep in the front of your mind is, what should I carry away from the book of Revelation? How should I live or think or worship or believe differently because I've studied the book of Revelation? Um, might be something very specific that you're supposed to do. It might be something you want to study and meditate on more. It might be something you want to make a matter of ongoing prayer. But 
after three months in the book of Revelation, shouldn't there be something that we carry with us beyond this study? Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Jesus begins and ends the book of Revelation with the same promise. Look, look at chapter one, verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now if you go to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, he says, behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So today is about keeping the words of the prophecy. And that's what I want you to listen for the Spirit to say to you. Remember when I was telling you that? Remember when I was saying this to you? And, and walk out of here in glad doomanship um, of the book of Revelation. So let me pray for us along that line and then we'll walk through the book together one more time. Let's pray. Lord, I pray um, that the kind and good and irresistible work of your spirit would be upon us all, that we would not be hearers of the word only, which means that we would be forgetters of the word, but that today we would heed the prompting of your spirit, that we'd hear what he's saying to the church, and we would walk out of here with, in glad and simple obedience to it. Help us now, Lord, we pray. Amen. All right, so for the purpose of reviewing the book, I've come up with a really complicated outline that I want you guys to think through with me. There's a beginning, and there's a middle, and there's an end. Okay, that's kind of how we're gonna walk through the book. We're gonna look at three big chunks of the book of Revelation. There'll be a beginning section, and I want you to think, what was God saying to me during that section? There'll be a middle section, what was God saying to me as we studied that? And then the end section, the same kind of things. What's God saying? What am I supposed to carry out of this study is really what we want to think about. Now the first section, the beginning section, we'll, we'll cram chapters one through five into that section. And it begins with this remarkable description of Jesus. This is how the book begins. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. They represent the churches. And in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So it's a stunning portrait of Jesus that opens the book of Revelation and lays the foundation for the whole book that Jesus is one worthy of our worship. We are right to worship this kind of being. And it's this kind, well, let me, let me first give you some of the titles that we ran into of Jesus to add to this portrait throughout the book. He's the Christ, he's the faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead, he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the son of man, the one who was dead and came to life, the son of God, the one who searches our hearts, the one who is holy and true, the faithful and true witness, the lamb who was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the rider on the white horse, the word of God, the bright and morning star, the one who is coming soon. 
This is who Jesus is in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation starts with the assertion that this Jesus loves us. Okay? In chapter one, right out of the blocks, it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what follows this amazing portrait of Jesus in chapter one, if you remember, are seven letters to seven churches in chapters two and three. And these letters are expressions of Christ's love and care for his church. We, we said they're love letters in a sense. They're not written to terribly impressive churches. These are likely not mega multi-site churches with many campuses. These are probably small churches. And as we read, we see that, that they're fraught with sin. Um, but because Jesus loves and cares for them, he writes these love letters and they have a form to them. In each letter, Jesus says that he knows them. He knows their sufferings and hardships and victories. Um, he reveals himself to them in each of the letters in a unique way. He encourages them, he rebukes them because that rebuke is also an expression of his care for them. And so as we read these letters, we heard the churches being encouraged for things like faithfulness in suffering and hardship, good deeds, keeping the word of Christ, not denying his name for the way that they loved. But there was also words of rebuke. They were rebuked for forsaking their first love, for embracing false teaching, for tolerating sexual immorality, for idolatry, for being lukewarm in their love for God. And as we studied these letters to the churches, the idea was that we would find ourselves in these churches. Okay. We asked the question, which church do you attend? Right. Which one of these churches do you most relate to where the encouragement to them is your encouragement and the rebuke for them is your rebuke? Um, which one of these churches do you attend? You know, when we went through the Ephesian church, um, it seemed to me to have special relationship to us at Northway. Because um, he commends them, and he commends us, for perseverance and spiritual discernment. He says in chapter two, to that Ephesian church and to us, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And that's encouragement to the church at North Wake. But there's also a rebuke to Ephesus that could be our rebuke too. He says in verse four, this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Could that be said of you? That your love for God has waned a little bit in recent years or in recent months? Um, do you attend that church in Ephesus? Let me encourage you. This week, take just a little bit of time and read back through these letters to the churches, chapters two and three, and just remember what the Spirit was trying to say to you about which church you attend, right? And what Jesus is calling you to do about it. Okay. So if you really want to hear Jesus calling, read Revelation two and three. That's where you hear Jesus calling. He speaks beautifully to the churches in love, okay? So this beginning section 
um, of Revelation, it concludes with a really remarkable privilege. It's a glimpse into the actual throne room of God. You remember that in chapters four and five? Uh, we saw this, chapter four. John says, I was in the spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. A stunning view of God seated on his throne. And around the throne we saw 24 elders that represent the people of God. And we saw these four bizarre living creatures that represent all of creation around that throne. In verse 8 it says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and lives forever and ever, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. And John establishes the centrality of the throne of God to this whole vision in the book of Revelation. The whole, the, the throne is the centerpiece of everything that takes place in the book. Okay. It's the centerpiece of the life of the church. It's the centerpiece of all of creation. We could say it's the center of the universe. Everything centers around this throne, the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so when we went through these passages, we asked this question, is that your center? Is that what your life, your work, your money, your family revolve around? Or is it center on the throne, worshiping the one who's seated on the throne with all creation? See, that's your design. That's where your satisfaction and fulfillment is. That's your purpose to live life around that throne. We also saw when we went through this section that there was sorrow around that throne. Um, God is holding a scroll in his right hand and no one can seem to open it and John is weeping there because um, no one is found worthy until one of the elders says to John in verse five, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And as soon as that happened, worship busts out in heaven at a whole new level. And we read these verses. Worthy are you, Christ, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Okay. So there's this incredible worship happening around the throne of God. And as we think about uh, that, it, that worship is what shapes our worship now, okay? So this is kind of like pregame for what we'll do around the throne then. 
Are, are you mindful of, of that when you come to worship here? So if what we do now is a foretaste of gathering around the throne of God and worshiping there, so in a sense we are gathering around the throne of God now, if you thought like that when you came to church on Sunday at Northwick, how would that affect your worship? Okay. Would you confess a little more? Repent a little better before you showed up if you were going to be before the throne of God? Would you be on time if you were going to gather around the throne of God? Would that, would that be important to you? Um, would you? Would you participate around the throne of God? You know, I'm a pocket guy. That's where my hands go. But would your hands come out of the pocket around the throne of God? Would they? Would you bow down? Would you kneel? Would you rejoice? Would you weep? See, this is what we do. We are gathering now around the throne of God, a foretaste of what we'll do then, unhindered, no sin, no fear, um, around the throne. So it all revolves around the throne. And in my complicated outline of the book of Revelation, we move from the beginning section to that middle section, also known as the cray-cray section, right? Where it has all these crazy images. In chapters 6 through 16 and a little bit more, we see those seven seals on that scroll opened by Christ and the angels. They unveil three cycles of seven great judgments that unfold upon the earth. Okay. And the imagery is sobering there. Imagery of plagues and wars and famine and sorrow upon the earth. Things that we see in the headlines of our day, we may well see even in greater measure as the time of Christ's coming uh, draws nearer and nearer. And when we went through this section, we gleaned three great kind of overarching principles. The first was that evil really does exist, it's present in our world. Okay. It's embodied in the imagery of the beast in chapter 11, the dragon in chapter 12, the evil city Babylon in chapter 14, the great prostitute in chapter 17, and the, the, the false prophet in chapter 20 and more. Okay. All of these evil entities are allied against God and his people. Consider that red dragon in chapter 12. It's a great Christmas passage, alternative Christmas passage to read, the Christmas dragon in Revelation chapter 12. And there um, he is thwarted, the dragon is thwarted in his attempts to devour the child who is the Christ child um, who is born. And so he turns his wrath on those of us who follow Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 17 of chapter 12. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, that's us, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Okay. Evil exists and he viciously opposes God and his people and that puts you and me in the crosshairs. And that's really the second thing we gleaned from this section of scripture. Evil exists, and as a result of that, there's great spiritual battle going underway in our lives. Okay. And again, that language associated with that dragon in chapter 12 makes it clear. 
the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. He is making war against you and against me, against us as God's people. Um, It's a war out there. Evil exists. There's a great spiritual battle underway and we don't get a pass on it. The third thing we saw was that people suffer, suffer greatly in this war, even the people of God. Okay? We don't get a pass on suffering and affliction in spiritual warfare um, at the hands of those who oppose God and his people. Uh, look at verse 13, this description of this beast who opposes God. It says that it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So, Satan and evil sometimes prevail in our world, in our lives. We suffer because of this battle. But even amidst this terrible suffering and evil, we are called to stand Look at that same passage. That beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And just a couple of verses farther, it says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So we see there's great evil in our world, spiritual warfare results, and it rages around us. And the followers of Jesus will suffer in that battle. We are not exempted. We are called to stand faithful, even amidst that suffering. Remember the encouragement um, that was given to that church in Smyrna in chapter two, one of the seven churches. It says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And as, as we saw so beautifully in the last section of the book of Revelation, It is so going to be worth it, right? It's so going to be worth it. We also saw in this section that whereas God's people suffer, those without God's mercy in Christ suffer far worse. Um, Listen to this description from chapter 6 when the fifth angel opens his seal of judgment. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So when we went through this section, we talked about as we as we think about how terrible the wrath of God is against those outside of Christ, who is your one that you so love that you are willing to reach out to them and help them be spared and rescued from the wrath of God that's coming? Who is your one? The one person most on this earth that you love such that you desperately want them to see spared God's wrath. Who who is that? We ask all of us to, to have one person at the front of our minds that we're praying for and asking God for an opportunity. Now, if you are suffering in this broken world, 
From this section of scripture, we learn that you're no exception, right? We are at war, and suffering is a part of living in a war zone. The God who loves you and reigns over our world knows, and he's working out a glorious rescue. But for now, the call is for endurance and faith, and that victory and rescue are what we found in the last section of the book, the third section of the book. Okay. Chapters 17 to 19 reveal the final victory of Jesus over that counterfeit trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, along with the wicked city of Babylon, the, the prostitute, and Satan himself. They're thrown in the lake of fire at the glorious return of Jesus. It's described this way in chapter 19. John says, I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's a stunning portrait of Jesus again at the other end of the book. He's faithful and true. His judgments, though terribly severe, are righteous. His flaming eyes see and judge all rightly. He wears many crowns, far more than the dragon's seven or even the beast's ten crowns. He has fuller and greater authority. He has a secret name that remains a mystery to us until he reveals himself to us fully on this day. His robe is dipped in blood, his own atoning blood, the blood of his enemies. He is called the word of God. He speaks and carries out the commands of God against his enemies. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. He brings the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He bears worthy and exalted and supreme names, unlike the beast who was full of blasphemous names. Clearly, this is the true warrior king, King Jesus. He reigns above all others on the throne with God Almighty, and he's exercising his reign to the fullest. And so we turn the page to chapter 20, and we see described the thousand-year reign of Jesus, um, the millennium, we call it. And so what I'd like to do to help us think more about this and other things in the book of Revelation Tonight at six o'clock in this room, three of our profs from Southeastern have agreed to come and answer our questions about the book of, of Revelation. They'll tell you who the beast and the Antichrist will be. Tonight, don't, don't, don't miss it here. The good news though is honestly, they'll answer your questions and they're gonna do it in English. So it's gonna be awesome. So come, bring your questions. Uh, we are so richly blessed. Uh, Dr. Ben Merkel, Dr. Ken Keithley, and Dr. Chip McDaniel will all be here, um, and they'll be sharing their perspective, their answers their, to your questions on the book of Revelation and related issues. So uh, I hope you'll come. Uh, it's not very many churches that can have brothers that worship alongside them and serve alongside them. 
available to us to ask questions of. So we are richly blessed. I hope you'll come back tonight and uh, figure out when on earth that millennium really is. So that'll be answered tonight um, in various different ways. So um, in chapter 20, that little section on Jesus' thousand-year reign is followed by the final judgment in verse 12. He says, I saw the dead, great, small, standing before the throne, books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is a scene that's often called the great white throne of judgment and books are now opened that are records of our deeds, of our life. And there's a second separate book that's opened that seals our fate and that's the book of life. If your name is found missing from that book, you are thrown into the lake of fire with death and Hades and the devil and the beast and the false prophet and there... Along with them, you'll be tormented both day and night forever and ever. These are the most, maybe the most sobering words in all of Scripture. There's no room for universalism here. The idea that all will be saved, it's just not possible according to what Revelation is teaching us here. And that raises a super important question. Are you confident that your name is in that book? The Lamb's Book of Life. Revelation says that God wrote it there before the foundation of the world. It says all who dwell on earth in chapter 13 will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. So if your name isn't written in the book, you'll worship other gods. You'll worship the beast that anti-God embodiment of evil. And those whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life will not worship the beast. They will worship Christ. That's how you know if your name is in the book. Do you worship Christ? Do you follow Christ? Do you serve Christ? If you do, then that's because your name is written in that book before the foundation of the world. If you're here and you don't yet believe in Christ, if you will, if you will believe in Christ, that's evidence that your name was written in that book before the foundation of the world. If you will believe, that's our great hope, the Lamb's book of life, that we verify our presence of our name in by virtue of our faith in Jesus and his death on the cross for our sins. Now, when this victory over evil is finally won in chapter 20, John then turns the page in chapters 21 and 22. He gives us a sneak preview of the new heaven and the new earth. And we've just talked about this recently. It's stunning. Um, he says, I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And John turns from this vision of the new heaven and the new earth to the centerpiece of it. It's the, it's the city, the new Jerusalem, and it's stunning in its beauty once again with streets of gold and pearly gates and everything. It's, it's there. Okay. In chapter 22, he says it's like a garden city. I likened it to a river walk and one of our, the most beautiful places on earth that runs through the city center. As we see that there's a river there, it says, the angel showed me the river of water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And there's a tree there. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed, excuse me, rather, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there's a throne in the city. Everything centers around it. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And then verse four puts it beautifully. It says, they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. So in that place of unsurpassed, unimaginable beauty, we'll see God face to face, and we will belong to him. He will be our God and we will be his people. And then the book ends in the only way that it could after that scene. It's a cry for Jesus to come soon. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. So we are coming up on a season it starts the Sunday after Thanksgiving. It's called Advent. And we often think of it as a time where we anticipate the birth of Christ, his first coming. We look forward to it and delight in it and ready our hearts to celebrate it, as we should. But it is also a season of longing for his second coming as we wait expectantly for it. So what if during this season of Advent, and you can get a jump start on it for the next couple weeks. We prayed this little prayer that ended the book of Revelation. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. What if that was our prayer? And we prayed it all throughout that season as a way of keeping the words of the prophecy of this book. We just made that our, our regular, almost daily prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And you could... An easy way to remember to do this, you attach it to something that you do every day. Doing, this can be your doing dishes prayer. This can be your changing diapers prayer, which really makes you long for the Lord to return when you're praying during times like that. Let's make this our prayer. Because Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So this morning... How will you keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Let me pray for us. Okay. Oh Lord, let us be keepers of your word, the prophecy of this book.
Let us not be hearers only, but doers. So even in this moment, God, we ask, what should we take away from this time? Help us, Lord, to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to us. And this we pray in his great name. Amen.